Well, after a number of weeks and a special series, we have the joy of coming back this morning to our study of Matthew's gospel into Matthew chapter 21. You can be finding that in your Bibles while uh, uh, we turn our attention there. If you have studied Greek mythology, you probably remember the story of Pygmalion. Uh, That was a a story told by Ovid in his book Metamorphosis about a a sculptor on the island of uh, uh, Cyprus. He had had some bad experiences and had sort of renounced the idea of marriage and any interaction with women and was going to live a celibate life and devote himself to the arts. In the course of that time, he took up sculpting and took a piece of ivory and decided to sculpt a woman out of it. And having completed his project, he actually fell in love with his sculpture. He thought it was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen, and he actually started to show his affection. He would kiss his ivory sculpture of a woman. He would hug her. He secretly began to buy gifts and bring them home to his little creation here. Apparently, the goddess Athena, Ovid tells us, was so moved by this that she actually granted a wish to Pygmalion to turn his statue into a living person, into a wife for him. Now, of course, over time, the people have adapted that story in many different ways and many different cultures. We all know the story of Pinocchio and things like that, where people had a, a creation that eventually sort of came to life in the way that they hoped, in the way that they wanted. In modern day, sociologists have even dubbed something the Pygmalion effect, that is, this, this notion that you can generate certain positive outcomes on the part of other people if you just have high expectations for them, if you just project on them sort of what you would hope or want them to be. Now, to be fair, that, that has been disproven time and time again, but, but that has sort of been the, the idea that some people have, that you can just kind of project your, your expectations out there, that they ought to have a b- bigger impact on, on the world around you or maybe on others around you. But in reality, we all know that expectations, if they have any impact, they have impact on us. They can impact us in profound ways, in the ways that we think about our life, in the ways that we think about our future, the way that we think about our situation, whether it is hopes or fears that are based on unfounded expectations, expectations not really based in reality, they can have a profound impact, or whether they're based on our own sort of selfish desires, maybe disappointments or hurts that we've experienced, and they, they sort of affect us mentally, they affect us deep within. And of course, one of the keys to wisdom in life is learning to align expectations with reality, to align expectations with reality. The, 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 whatever it is you have sculpted in your heart about what you hope for, that may not be what reality really is. And even more important, on an even more important level, on a spiritual level, the key to life is learning to align your expectations with the truth of God's Word, because that's ultimately what defines reality. God's Word is, is the way that we should 
and the way that we can properly understand the world around us. You see, so many people find themselves disenchanted, not just with life, but sometimes even specifically disenchanted with God or disenchanted with the Bible or disenchanted with the Christian life or disenchanted with the church because they have sculpted some idea in their heart and mind about what all that is supposed to to be, maybe what the Bible is supposed to be and the way they read it and the way it's supposed to make them feel, or maybe what God is supposed to be and the way that they expected him to work or respond in their life. And when it doesn't align with their expectations, they just become disenchanted. Or the church or the Christian life, or whatever it might be, they have sculpted something in their heart and mind that they hoped would become reality, but it never did. And it's left them deeply, deeply affected. Well, today, we come to a passage of Scripture that really is all about that. Matthew chapter 21 is a clash of expectations. It's a, a clash of expectations from Jesus' disciples, from, from the people who live in Jerusalem, from all kinds of crowds, expectations that they all had for their own reasons about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about whatever it is they were hoping for versus the expectations that should have been defined by God's word. It's a passage that's really all about the acclaimed entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, sometimes called the triumphal entry. That's really more of a a description of the expectations of his followers than reality because they wanted a triumphal entry. They wanted a victorious entry. But as we know, it was far from that. That's not the reality of what took place on the ground which is really at the heart of the story, this conflict between the expectations in the minds of so many people, even Jesus' followers, of what Jesus should be doing or what God should be doing, even though the reality that they were facing at that very day when it took place wasn't measuring up. Now, just a little background here as we uh, come into this passage. This is a a whole new scene for us. Jesus, everything we've been studying in Matthew so far has really been up in Galilee and and partly his journey down to Jerusalem. And now as Matthew chapter 21 opens, we find him at Jerusalem in his final week, literally just days now before he's to be crucified. He'd actually been here about a week or so earlier, we're told by the other gospels, Matthew doesn't record it, but, but uh, John tells us that he had arrived at a village called Bethany where he stayed at the home of Mary and Martha and one man named Lazarus. You may remember the story. Lazarus had died. He had died and he had actually been buried and he was in the tomb and his body was already decaying. Mary and Martha said it was already stinking from the decay. When Jesus shows up into the village, And at that moment, calls Lazarus forth from the tomb and he walks out of the grave. He unwraps his grave clothes and everyone gazes upon what is one of the most spectacular miracles that Jesus ever performed. And the reaction to it 
was profound. We read in John chapter 11, many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and they told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. John says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And as a result, John says, Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews but went away from there to a country uh, near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. This would have been about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And he stayed there with his disciples. John says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Now all of this sort of took place here before we ever come to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus was aware of it. That's why he withdrew. The disciples were aware of it. In fact, when Jesus starts to think about going back to Jerusalem, his disciples say to him in John chapter 11, don't you know that they are going to stone you when you get there? So they all knew, everyone knew kind of what the environment was. Mark tells us that as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, in Mark 10, they, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. The disciples heard all this, but they didn't understand it. John tells us, the other gospels tell us, they didn't understand it. It's not that they didn't understand the words, they just didn't understand, understand the concepts because there was a clash going on in their minds between what they were hearing in reality versus what they were expecting in their hearts. I mean, they had been with Jesus. They had seen all of his power. They had seen his righteous life. They had just seen this amazing miracle. They could not imagine, they couldn't wrap their heads around how in the world something like that could happen to him. They knew the threats were there. They just weren't quite sure how to reconcile all this stuff in their minds. So here they were, they were traveling back to Jerusalem with all of this excitement and with all of this trepidation, with all this anticipation and all this uncertainty as well. And that's where we pick up here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat him and, 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 sat, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus has returned. He's come back to the city of Jerusalem, actually to, to the city of Bethany. Again, John, John tells us this, that, that there were two villages that were involved, Bethany and Bethphage. Bethphage was actually where the donkey would be found. But, but Jesus was staying at the home of Mary and Martha in, in Bethany, which uh, was a, a little village that was uh, going, uh, going east up over the Mount of Olives, descending down the other side into another valley and then up another hill would have been Bethany. It still exists today, although it's, it's, a, it's an Islamic village renamed now today as El Lazaria, literally the town of Lazarus. To this day, it is still known for its most famous resident for the resurrection of Lazarus 2,000 years ago. So, so here he is, he arrives in this little town and, and John says it happens six days before the Passover, which would have, going from the Passover, which would have been a Friday, uh, April 3rd, AD 33, if you count backwards six days, that obviously puts you on Saturday, which would have been the Jewish Sabbath. And if Jesus traveled 20 miles, he, he very unlikely traveled during the Sabbath. Jews didn't walk long distances on the Sabbath. And so we assume he either arrived the Friday before, but um, actually made his entry into Bethany after sundown on Friday night, which would have technically been the Sabbath, six days before the, the Passover. Or uh, he, uh, he uh, may, maybe arrived on Sunday. Those would have been the two possibilities. Most scholars believe that he arrived on Friday and that he was welcomed into Mary's home. And then the following day, she prepared a banquet for him uh, where there was a expensive perfume that would have been poured over Jesus' feet as they reclined at the dinner table. The following day, word got out that uh, Jesus was in town because everyone knew about the resurrection of Lazarus, they would have gathered and uh, been there on Sunday to come around him. And then John tells us it was the following day that all of these events took place. That would have been Monday morning when he would have entered Jerusalem. Regardless of the particular events, Matthew, um, the particular uh, chronology, I should say, Matthew tells us how these momentous events unfolded. Jesus got up, uh, presumably in the morning, and gave his disciples some instructions that, that initiated this whole sequence of things. And and the day unfolds, or this uh, entry unfolds, you might say, in four phases or four scenes, which all highlight this clash of expectations, a clash of expectations from his disciples, clash of expectations from the residents of Jerusalem, clash of expectations that really should have been set by, by God's word. Four 
events or four scenes that kind of show us the paradox between the divine glory that, that was unfolding according to God's plan and the carnal glory that Israel was actually hoping for or seeking through their Messiah. It begins with a prediction that Jesus makes about these donkeys. Then we see a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, the praise of the people as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem before he finally encounters the prejudice of the people in the city once he crosses into the walls. And, and we can just trace these four events or these four phases to really understand the purpose of why, the, um, why the, the gospel writers recorded all this for us. The first one in verses one through three is this prediction that Jesus makes that presents his control of the situation. Here they are and they're, they're in Bethany and Jesus tells them to go to Bethphage, which is this village uh, across the way. It would have actually been on the eastern slope of the Mount of, Olive, uh, Mount of Olives. You had to go over to the western slope before you got to Jerusalem. So just over the ridge, uh, out of view from Jerusalem. Uh, and he is up on the hill in Bethany. He says, go over to Bethphage uh, across the way. And you're going to find there a donkey and a colt tied up as soon as you enter the village. Now, there's no way he could have known that apart from the fact that he knows everything. There's no way that he could have known that apart from the fact that he was omniscient. And this was just demonstrating the fact that he already knew exactly how the day was going to unfold. In fact, he knew how the week was going to unfold. That's why he knew that they were going to take his life. See, all along the way, the disciples might imagine that, that things were happening to Jesus, that, that, that this was all sort of out of his control, that things sort of, sort of went off the, the rails, we might say. But Jesus reminded them, as he did so many times in John chapter 10, I, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. See, he's communicating the same thing here. Whenever he's telling them how they're going to go and how they're going to find these donkeys and everything that's going to happen, he's communicating. He is in total control. He knows everything. Nothing is, nothing is catching him by surprise. And so when they go and they seek this out, Jesus says, not only are you going to find the donkey, but, but the owners are going to be there and they're going to question you. And when they question you, you're going to respond in this way and that's going to be sufficient for them and they're going to let you take the donkey. He knew all that. He knew exactly where the donkey and the colt were going to be. He knew the owners would be there and he knew how they were going to respond. Now, he probably knew because he knew the hearts of the owners. Those, these were probably people who had encountered Jesus, maybe had heard his teaching and they were believers and they didn't need a lot of explanation. All they needed was a word from his disciples that the Lord needs their donkey, and that was sufficient for them. But Jesus knew all of these things. And so he tells them to go, and, and of course they go, and they find it to be exactly as he said it was. Luke says this over and over again in his account, that they found it exactly as he said it was. They found it exactly as he said it was. See, this was demonstrating to them something that they needed to learn, that all of us need to learn, that God is in complete control of all the circumstances, not just of Jesus' life, but of our life as well. 
None of the stuff that happens in the future that might grip us with all kinds of anxiety and uncertainty, none of it catches him by surprise. He knows all of these things and he is in complete control of all of these things. In that way, he, he reflects what is a fundamental and, um, and critical component of God's glory. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times those things that have not yet been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, this is the profound thing about God that he does over and over and over and over again. He declares the end from the beginning. He says things that are going to take place long before they ever happen. Long before they ever happen. In this situation, it might have been a few hours, but over and over again throughout Scripture, God makes predictions that were written down and copied and circulated and studied and even buried in books that were later dug up. Predictions that were made hundreds of years before they ever came to pass. And this is the glory of God. This is the glory of God. The predictions, the knowing of the end from the beginning, the unmistakable characteristic of God and God alone. He knows the future. And Jesus is now demonstrating that to his disciples, even in this mundane issue of retrieving a colt with all the profound implications of that on display. That he, he was not subject to the whims, the fancies of circumstances, but he was squarely in the sovereignty of of God's care. Now that sort of naturally leads to the second sort of event or the second scene here that puts this conflict of expectations on display, and that's the prophecy that comes to us in verses 4 and 5, a prophecy that portrays his humility. Matthew 21, 4, this took place, the, 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 the gathering of the, 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 the donkey and its colt, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, say, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The grander picture here is not just that Jesus was in control of the events surrounding his entry, but the fact that God was in control of everything, that he had orchestrated these events and foretold them hundreds of years before they ever took place. And they're demonstrated by this quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. By the way, Zechariah is quoted several times throughout the rest of the book of Matthew uh, it, is, it is one of the key books for the, the gospel writers, and particularly Matthew, for demonstrating God's foreknowledge and God's control of everything taking place in Christ's life. Well, here he quotes from, from Zechariah chapter 9, which is a chapter talking about the coming judgments on the nations surrounding Israel. And it focuses in on one particular king, one destroyer, we might say, one mighty king who would sweep across the nations with all kinds of destructive force. And we come to find out later in history that this king is none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander, 
uh, of course, is one of the greatest military kings, one of the greatest military men of all time. He was, he was renowned in his own day and even in our own day uh, today. He is still thought of with great admiration and respect because of his abilities and, and his ambition and his might and, and, and all of those things. And so this is telling the story about this, what we might call the epitome of a conqueror in Alexander the Great. But then in Zechariah 9.9, he sets a contrast, a contrast with another king, with Israel's king, who he says is not going to ride into Jerusalem triumphantly on some sort of mighty steed. That's what normally conquering kings would do. They would come in on their big stallion or whatever it is with all their armies This king is going to ride in on a donkey, a beast of burden, Zechariah calls him. These are not war animals. Uh, they, They weren't particularly agile. They weren't very fast. They certainly weren't that tall. They were really very little value in any kind of military exercise. In fact, donkeys were rarely ridden at all by people. But sometimes they were used as a sign of peace. For example, King David, whenever he was coming to the end of his reign after all of his wars and all of his battles, all the sort of bloody uh, nightmare of his, of his uh, long reign, he had been in constant warfare. But he was about to pass off the scene and transfer the kingdom of Israel to his son Solomon. And he wanted Solomon to have a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And so what he does is he has his men go outside the city and place his little boy Solomon on a donkey and bring Solomon into the city on the back of a donkey as a sign of what he hoped Solomon's reign would be. It would be a peaceful kingdom. All this is sort of behind this retrieval uh, of, the, of the colt, of the donkey. It's not only a fulfillment of a prophecy, but it's a prophecy with a definite message. Jesus was entering into Jerusalem not to make war, not to be a mighty conqueror in the sense that people are used to a conqueror. His purpose wasn't to lead some sort of armed conflict against Roman oppressors or any other kinds of oppressors. His entry was a peaceful one. And the, and the donkey symbolizes that. This is Jesus presenting himself most certainly to Israel as their king, but a different kind of king, a humble king. I mean, this is the definition of, of humble. This, a donkey is not a stately animal by any means. People didn't normally ride them because, as I said, uh, your feet would almost drag the ground when you did ride them. This, this was no beautiful horse or chariot with a mighty cavalry or any of those things. This was a humble man coming in with humble circumstances. In fact, there wasn't even a saddle uh, on which he sat. They actually threw their garments over the back of these animals to protect Jesus from all the filthy fur that would have been a, a part of them. We, Jesus rides in on this, not just the donkey, but the colt, the baby of the two. That, that, by the way, is why they brought both animals because uh, this colt, we're told by one of the other gospel writers, had never even been ridden on. It was so young. 
which in some ways was a sign of a uniqueness. It had been reserved or preserved in some way, and Jesus was the inaugural person writing it, but it was also just a humble thing. I mean, one of the weak, sort of most unimpressive animals that you could have, and they brought the mother along because the baby was so young it would have probably not gone easily with the disciples if they didn't also bring the mother. That's why they had both of them. But for those who had been anticipating this day, for those who had been imagining what this might look like after everything they had seen and heard, this had to be a little disappointing. This didn't fit their paradigm This isn't the Jesus that they were hoping for. This is not the Messiah they had sculpted in their mind. This is not the the beautiful king that they thought that they would fall in love with. Of course, they were going to praise him anyway, but they were dealing here with this clash of their expectations. See, they wanted... They wanted a king who would come in and eliminate all their external problems, which for them were largely related to the Roman occupation of their nation. They wanted a king who were going to come in and clear the way of all the things that were, in their minds, restricting them from having the kind of life of fulfillment that they wanted. That's the kind of God, and that's the kind of Savior they were concerned with, and nothing else. Nothing else. And so they wanted to celebrate a mighty conquering king. They wanted someone who they saw work mightily in Lazarus' life. They wanted him to do the same kind of miracles and wonders in their own life, in their own nation. But here he comes, feet dragging on the ground, riding on the back of a colt. It brings us to the, the next event here that goes on to demonstrate this kind of clash of expectations, and that's in verse 6. And seven and eight, the, the praise that, that they are giving to him that really demonstrates and proclaims what their real desires were. Matthew tells us that they were gathering along this, this strip of road from Jerusalem. Luke actually tells us that it involved a descent down the Mount of Olives. The Roman road, which we've discovered, uh, run, runs north of the Mount of Olives, really kind of around Mount Scopus, That road entered into the northeast corner of Jerusalem. So they weren't on the major road because they were going up and over the Mount of Olives, which probably means that Jesus was taking the less used pathway that would have had him entering into one of the southern gates of Jerusalem. It had at least one advantage to it, that it would have been mostly out of sight from the Antonio Fortress and from the Roman soldiers who would have been uh, primarily focused on entry at the Roman road. So all this sort of commotion that was going on was in some way hidden from those soldiers who might have maybe had some concern about it. But nevertheless, as he makes his way up and over the Mount of Olives and begins to descend along the way, we're told that all of these crowds were gathering around him and they were made up of three different groups of people. John's gospel tells us that there was a great multitude who had come for the feast. That would have been all the people from the distant areas of 
of, Jeru- of, of Israel, and a lot of them, of course, coming from Galilee. They would have been familiar with Jesus and all of his miracles, having seen him do those things around the Sea of Galilee. There was a second group, John says, who were the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. So these would have been primarily the residents in those little villages of Bethany, uh, maybe just a few hundred people. And then John says there was a separate one, a separate group who heard that he had performed this sign with Lazarus. So these would have been people from within the city of of Jerusalem who heard the rumors of what took place and they came out of the city to meet him somewhere along the road. And we don't really know how many total people uh, these are. We have some idea. We know from uh, studies about the water supply and how much water was available in the city of, of Jerusalem back in those days that the city itself couldn't have been larger than eighty to 100,000 people. We also know from from Josephus and from others that during festival times that the city swelled to sometimes two or three or possibly four times its size. So there might have been 250 or 300,000 people who were scattered in tents all over the hills there who had come in for the Passover. And if just one-tenth of those people showed up for this procession, there would have been, as, uh, there would have been 25,000 people gathered and crowded along the little two-mile stretch where Jesus was, was coming into Jerusalem. Whatever it was, John says that the Pharisees were saying to themselves, look, the whole world has gone after him. So their perception was, whatever the number was, that this is over the top, a massive crowd. The whole world is going after him. Matthew tells us that they, as they lined the roads, they were throwing their garments on the road, trying to create some sort of makeshift royal carpet. And those who didn't have garments to lay down on the road were cutting branches from the palm trees, trying to, trying to dress up what they thought was too humble of a circumstances, trying to dress up this procession to be what they thought it should be in their minds and, and the kind of king that Jesus should be. And in verse 9, it says, the crowds that went before him and that followed after him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now they were saying this, Luke tells us, not because they really knew a whole lot about Jesus. They were saying this, Luke 19.37 says, because of the miracles they had seen. They were just chanting these things because of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, because of the power that had put on display. They were praising him with no real knowledge about what he taught, no real knowledge about what he stood for, no real understanding out of the scripture itself about who he was supposed to be, but based solely on their expectation that if he had worked so powerfully on behalf of Lazarus, that maybe he would work powerfully on their behalf as well. This is the essence of superficial praise. This is the demonstration of what has happened so many times through the centuries. People who are taking the name of Jesus on their lips, who are praising and exalting him, and they don't even know who he is. 
They have a perception. They have an expectation. They have something they've sculpted in their hearts about what they think Jesus should be and what they think Jesus should do and how they believe Jesus ought to treat them and respond to them in their life. But it doesn't match up with who he really is. They were just caught up in the thrill that he might be the coming political and religious leader that they were hoping for. You ever seen a political rally where people are just going crazy? That's what was going on here. It was a crazy scene. Hosanna, literally, that means save us. Save us, oh God. It comes out of Psalm 118. This whole thing is a, a quote from Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26, which was one of the Hallel Psalms. This is the Psalms that, that Jews would actually chant and sing on their pilgrimage, on their road going up to Jerusalem over several days. They would kind of sing these songs together in groups. And so this was what you might just call a familiar tune that, that everyone had, you know, sort of readily on their minds. And so they just started to chant this, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally, save us. We're asking for salvation. The problem was it was just a different kind of salvation than what he was offering. They were singing and just plugging in the familiar words to match their hopes. Mark actually says they were singing, Blessed be God for the coming kingdom of our father David. John says they were calling him the king of Israel. Clearly what was on their minds, the use of the son of David terminology, they, they were expecting material change in their life. Outward transformation of their circumstances. It's at this point that Luke tells us in Luke 19.42 he gets near the city and he, he pauses and he says out loud if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes see he wasn't, he wasn't affected by all of the superficial praise the pseudo followers, the pseudo-believers. He wasn't affected by any of that because he knew. They have no idea what they're asking or what they're seeking. They they don't have no idea who I am. If you only knew, but you don't. You have a praise. You have a religion. You have an attachment to Jesus. You have a hope. You have an expectation, but you don't know. You don't understand. You've just formulated something in your mind. You've sculpted some beautiful ivory model and you've fallen in love with that, but you don't really know Jesus. You don't really know the Messiah. It's just empty, empty words. Of course, we know that because so many of these who are on this day chanting and praising and singing Hosanna In just a few days, they'll be chanting, but they'll be calling for his crucifixion. You see, they they reach the same point that so many people do. They have an expectation, you might even say a demand, 
that God would be who they think he should be, that Jesus would be who they think he should be. And when he doesn't do that, they're done with him. They're done with him. Well, that leads us to this final event when Jesus actually gets to the city in verse 10 and he encounters a prejudice that actually precedes the doom of the city and of Israel because when he enters the city in verse 10, the whole city was stirred up saying, who's this? So, so now he's passed through the gate of the city and he's gotten into the crowded, narrow streets of Jerusalem and now he's encountering a totally different group of people. These are not the pilgrims who came up with Jesus from Galilee, the ones who had gone out favorably to chant and cheer him along the way. Now he's entered in through the gates and he's dealing with the residents of Jerusalem itself and their response is much more frosty than anything he's seen so far. They're like, who is this? Who's this guy that everyone's chanting and cheering about? In fact, it says that the city was stirred up. It's a, it's a word for earthquake, but it, it's used in reference to people when they are on edge or trembling or fearful. They were actually afraid that this whole thing was going to create a scene and that it was going to provoke a military response and, and maybe kind of maybe some massacre was going to now take place from the Roman soldiers in the middle of the Passover. So there was, this was an unwanted commotion. Luke actually says that some of the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, tell your disciples to quiet down. To which he responds, I tell you, if these become silent, the very stones would cry out. The people in, inside the city were less than enthusiastic. They didn't know who this guy was. They were asking, who is this guy? Where did he come from? The answer that they got was, from their perspective, not that encouraging. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, which for them probably would have been a disqualifying factor right from the start. This was, this was an irrelevant, backwoods, unconnected, and uneducated part of the country. Just imagine any sort of corner of your state, any sort of backwoods area that you could picture in your mind and imagine that maybe one of their town leaders comes into the middle of your city and um, people are proclaiming his greatness. You're like, who is this? Uh, who is this guy? And where is he from? Disconnected and irrelevant. In fact, you remember, this is exactly what the disciples themselves thought whenever Nathaniel first heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He says in John 1:46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Later on, whenever Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem in, in John chapter 7, He's doing uh, some public teaching and he's speaking truth and curring, stirring up a, a, all kinds of commotion again. And, and there's a debate between people in the city, particularly those who had traveled in for the festival and those who were residents there. And when people are trying to defend Jesus, the residents were replying in John 7:52, saying, are you from Galilee also? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That was their perspective. I mean, you can call the guy a prophet all you want, but we know nobody of any significance comes from there and certainly not from Nazareth. See, in their minds, they had an expectation. They they had a, a, a particular vision of what their king would look like and how he would behave and how he would present himself and how he would dress and how, all these things of what they imagined, what they defined their Savior to be. And they looked at Jesus and he didn't match any of that. He didn't match any of that. And so whatever the brief exuberance that might have been on display on that two-mile journey over the Mount of Olives, it gets slammed into reality whenever he enters the city. They were never going to accept him because he didn't conform to their idea of the Savior that they thought they needed. Their whole expectation was based on just their selfish desires. Just what they imagined and what they defined for what they needed. But see, that's not what Jesus is. He's not coming and asking you what you need. He's coming and He's telling you what you need. What you need is not a political deliverance. What you need is not a circumstantial change in your life. What you need is not the release of all your difficult circumstances. What you need, what you need is for someone to deliver you from the wrath of God. That's what you need. What you need is to realize that your life has been corrupted by sin and it has been an offense to your maker. What you need is a savior and what he needs to save you from is God's wrath. That's the savior that Jesus came to present himself as. The one who came into the city not as a conquering king but as a sacrifice to be offered up on a cross where all of God's wrath that was intended for you, that you deserved, would be poured out on him. And he took all that wrath so that you could be delivered, you could be free, and you could be saved. I don't know what sort of experience you've had. I don't know what your attitude has been. I don't know what kind of what kind of disappointments that you have felt about God or about the church or about Christian people or about any of that stuff. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the expectation that's been communicated from God's word and who Jesus presents himself as. He presents himself as the savior that you need if you'll receive him. Father, uh, we need this as much as anyone to be reminded again and again that we are not the definers of you. We're not the definers of righteousness, of truth, or of any of those things. It is you, O God. You're the one who knows the end from the beginning. You're the one who has all the glory. 
You're the one who is righteous. You're the one who is the judge. So for all those reasons, today we stand ready to accept your precious gift of the Savior we need. Thank you for sending him even before we needed, or knew that we needed it. And I pray for those who are here today who all they have focused on is their disappointments. They may have even turned away from any serious pursuit of you or your word. I pray that they would come to see that whatever it is that they have been disappointed in, it's not you. It's the God of their own making. And I pray that in light of that, they would repent, that they would humble themselves, and that they would finally bow before the true king, the one that you sent to be the savior of the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.